Turn in your Bible, if you will, to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 5. Last week, our focus uh, was on the Sermon on the Mount. We sort of did an overview of this entire sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then this last week, if you've been doing our 100 Days Through the Bible, you read through this sermon on Monday and on Tuesday. And so today we're back there. And we're going to focus on just a few verses, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll eventually be in verse 13. Uh, It's interesting as this sermon begins, uh, we we call the beginning the Beatitudes. That's not a biblical word. It's a Latin word that's sort of been attached to the first part of this sermon over the years. And we read those Beatitudes. It's about 10 verses long. And then we come to the section that we'll focus on today. But it's interesting when you look at the Beatitudes, uh, be this, be that, uh, blessed are those who are born in the spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. When you look at the attitudes, these Beatitudes, you'll see that here we find the privileges and the blessings that, that are discovered by a person who walks closely with Christ. Uh, Look at these, if you will. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You have the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Christ, uh, someone who walks with Christ, you know the kingdom of heaven. Verse four, the end of verse four, you will be comforted if, if you follow Christ. Verse five, you will inherit the earth. The end of verse six, you will be filled. That means you will be satisfied by the Lord. Look at verse seven, for you will be shown mercy. The end of verse eight, for you will see God. The end of verse nine, for you will be called the sons of God. You will be in God's family, a child of God. Look at the end of verse 10, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 uh, says that, See, I think it's actually in verse 12 here, uh, because your reward is great in heaven. And so here we see the benefits of walking closely with Christ. Now we come to verse 13 where we'll put our focus this morning and we see the responsibility that we have. We see the benefits, the privileges, and then beginning in verse 13, we see the responsibilities. So let's look at that. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. But you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so this talks about two subjects, really. It talks about being salt, and it talks about being light. And we're going to get to the details of what that means in a moment, but let me just tell you in a word, this is talking about influence. The influence that we can have in the lives of the people around you, influence is the greatest tool in your toolbox. We can have great influence in the lives of people around us so that their lives are different, so that their lives are changed because of the influence that we have. And Christ in these few verses is talking about the importance and the value of influence. When you think about influence, you realize that we can influence someone to feel encouraged or we can influence people to be discouraged, right? 
I mean, you can walk into and, and talk to somebody and you can bring encouragement in their lives or you can talk to somebody and you can discourage them. You have that power. You can influence them one way or the other. We can influence someone to be uh, inspired to do something. You can encourage somebody to tackle some great challenge. You can inspire them with your words. Or you could deter them from ever doing anything great. We have that kind of influence. You can make someone feel comfort. You can comfort somebody. You can bring that influence into their lives. Or you can make them feel fear. See, we have great power with our influence. You can cause somebody to experience joy, or you can cause somebody to, to experience despair. You can make somebody laugh, or you can make somebody burn with anger. We can change someone's life with our influence. Uh, did you know, I looked up this week, that in 2018, that companies in America spent $194 billion advertising their products and services right here in this country. That works out to almost $600 a person that they spent on advertising. I think about my family of five, that means they spent $3,000 on my family this year showing us advertisements to persuade us to use their services or buy their products. Now, why do they do that? Why is Facebook, a company that gives away for free their one and only product, why are they a company worth over $400 billion? Well, because influence is valuable and it's powerful. And if they can influence us to do things, if they can influence us to spend our money in a certain way, then that influence is valuable to them. Jesus talks about influence because influence is so critical, such a critical thing. Uh, I'll tell you, and, and I hesitate to tell stories about myself, but let me just tell you how influence has played a major, major role in my life uh, in three different ways. Three of the biggest changes in my life have all occurred because of the influence of somebody who never probably realized that he or she would have that kind of influence. Uh, so this goes back a ways, but I can remember being in the seventh great. I, um, it was right near the beginning of school. Maybe we're about two weeks into school. Uh, I was a, uh, a B student. That might be an exaggeration. I worked to be a B student. I was not uh, a very studious person. I uh, got in more trouble in school than I ever got uh, accolades uh, to that point. And so I was sitting in math class in the back of the class and my math teacher, seventh grade math teacher, Mrs. Emerson, she's about the only teacher in school whose name I can remember, but uh, Mrs. Emerson asked me to stay after class. Now that also was not an, an unusual thing and I knew that I was in trouble for my goofing off or whatever I had done in class. Uh, but I stayed after and she sat down with me and she said something that was not true and uh, she would have had no way of knowing if it were true. I'd only been in this school uh, for two weeks, three weeks, and only been in her class for two or three weeks. Uh, but she said, Noel, and I'll never forget this. She said, Noel, it is a privilege for me to be your math teacher because I have never met someone who is as brilliant at math as you are. Now she had, of course, no basis for that and it certainly was not true. But I, um, 
I was just blown away. I thought I was going to get detention. And she said those words. Uh, I went home that day and I read the rest of my math book. No exaggeration. I went to the library in the next two or three days there at my school and I checked out the next math book and I read that one. And then I read the next one and I read the next one. And by the end of that semester, I'd finished high school math. I became a nerd overnight. Uh, I went to uh, every math tournament that my school would allow me to go to. Uh, I won every single one of them. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, uh, my school district sent me along with one student from each grade to the state math tournament. The senior uh, got sick. And so when I got to the math tournament, uh, I, was, I was pretty arrogant as well. I lied and told them that I was the senior and I won the state math tournament the year before I was even eligible. Now, I am not brilliant at math. I uh, can barely add numbers together. I'm thankful for a calculator and a telephone that has a calculator in it. Uh, we have some actual math, uh, mathematicians in our church, about a half dozen of, of those, and I'm just in awe when I'm around them. But I, I share that story with you to, to, for this reason. That is the power of influence. And, and many of the things that have happened in my life since then could not have happened had I not gained the confidence that I gained because that seventh grade math teacher said maybe three sentences to me the second or third week of school. And God used that influence in my life to just make a remarkable change. Now, let me fast forward to my junior year of high school. I... Um, was not a believer. I didn't go to church. I, I knew the gospel. Our school back in those days would bring a, a revival preacher in. Every single year we would have a school assembly. This was a public school, uh, but um, times were different and this evangelist would share the gospel. So I knew the gospel. Uh, everybody in the high school knew the gospel, but I had not accepted the gospel. I, I was a hoodlum and in every way you can think of. In fact, uh, one of the youth groups, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, had uh, in the area had come together. They served about a six high school region and they voted. They had the students vote on who was the least likely person in all of the high schools to ever come to know Christ. And I won my first election <laughs> and they began to pray for me and I didn't know that at the time, but I had a... Um, I had a friend, she was a year younger than me, she was very shy, named Alicia Franklin, Alicia Holbrook now, and God just gave her a burden for me, for the worst hoodlum in town, and she shared the gospel with me, uh, gave me a Bible, and told me that she was going to pray for me every day until I came to know Christ, and about four weeks later, I did come to know Christ, and God just made a remarkable change in my life none of which I can take credit for. And I tell you the story again because I want you to see the power of influence of one sophomore high school girl who was so shy she couldn't talk to four people at once, but she was obedient to share the gospel when God put it on her heart. And then I fast forward just a few years later, I was uh, 
a student in college. I was studying engineering. I always wanted to be an engineer, computer engineer. I looked forward to the day that I could have a job where I could sit in a cubicle and close my door and never see anybody till the end of the day. That just delighted me. That fit my personality. That's what I wanted to do. And my youth pastor called me one day, I was off at college, and he said, Noel, I just don't believe that God has called you to be an engineer. I believe he's called you to be a Bible teacher. And I thought that was the nuttiest thing he had ever said. I would be more likely to be the next Olympic pole vaulter (laughs) than I would ever be a Bible teacher. Uh, But he said again, I believe uh, that that's what God's called you to do, and I'm going to pray for you until uh, God either confirms or denies that in your heart. And it was just a few weeks after that that I um, announced that I would leave school. I would uh, give up my, my education at that school, go to another school, and begin to prepare to teach the Bible. Now, I tell you those three stories because were it not for the influence of those three people, my life would be entirely different. And those people didn't have any fame. They didn't have any money. They weren't you know, skilled in some, uh, in, in some great... Um, uh, endeavor, they, they just were humble people who decided to have an influence in a young man's life and everything changed. You and I, our most powerful tool is that we can influence the people around us. And so Jesus writes in the Sermon on the Mount of the power of influence and the importance of influence. And so I want you to see that before we get into the, to the details of what he says, I want you to see that this is, a, this is something you see throughout the Bible. So let me show you two what I call opposite pairs in the Bible that, that demonstrate this. Sometimes when I, when I read something in the Bible to better understand it, I'll, I'll look for a place in the Bible where it says the opposite. Not, not that it contradicts it, but that it approaches it from the other side. And when you look at those two things together, you, you often can see things about God's word that you couldn't see otherwise. So let me show you two opposite pairs. That's just my word for that. But two opposite pairs, I think, that illustrate this. First of all, a general influence. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You see that on the screen. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, that's the bad side. And so if, um, if you hang around people who have bad morals, if you hang around people who are uh, casual about sin, if you hang around people who are going in the wrong direction, if you're not careful, their character will rub off on you. But then the Bible says not the opposite, but says something from the opposite side. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. And so while it says on one hand that we can influence people for the bad, he tells us here in Proverbs that we can influence people from the good. And so we put those two pairs together and here's the truth. We have great influence in the lives of the people around us. We can go a long ways toward determining the character of their lives for for better or for worse. Let me show you another pair. The bad, Mark 9.42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is speaking of the sin of influence. If you influence somebody to sin, 
If your influence is used to, to tear down their spiritual life, then the Bible says, Jesus says, there's great judgment. There's great discipline going to be brought in your life. That is a terrible thing. But we see here that we do have the ability to influence people to sin. But then on the other hand, and this is a verse we just read, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So while I can influence somebody to sin, I can also influence somebody to honor God. So you see together, you put those two things together and what do they tell us? We have great influence, not just on the character of people's lives, but we also have influence on the spiritual lives, the spiritual reality that is theirs. We have great influence. That is our greatest power. Our influence isn't dependent upon our wealth, our, our authority, our age, our intelligence, our skills and talents. All of us can have this influence. It's interesting that when Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, and when he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world, he was not speaking to the educated of his day, to the powerful of his day. He was in Galilee speaking to fishermen and farmers, and he said, you, your influence is going to make an impact in the world. So let's take a few minutes and just investigate the kind of influence he speaks of in these half dozen verses that we read. I want to ask and answer from scripture three important questions about influence. First of all, what kind of influence should we have? What is he talking about? Well, he mentions two things. He says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Now, salt and light, these types of influence are very different. Salt is something that's hidden, for one, right? You don't see salt when it's working, it's, it's hidden. Light, uh, on the other hand, is very visible. That's the whole point of light. And so one is hidden and one is visible. Uh, salt slows the progression of something. We'll see what in just a moment. Light provides guidance for you to move forward. So in, in many ways, these are very different, and they're, and they're two types of influence that we can have so let's look at them one at a time. First of all, we are to be salt. Do you see that in verse 13? You are the salt of the earth. Now, many people have drawn different analogies from this. Some people have suggested that because salt is white in its pure form, that we ought to be pure, that we ought to be without sin in the world. Uh, that's what it means to be salt. And, and there certainly is some truth to that. Some people have suggested that when he says you are the salt, you are to be salt. He's talking about how salt enhances the flavor of things. And so we should live in such a way that we make the Christian life more attractive to the people around us. Uh, some people have suggested that salt makes you thirsty. And so we ought to live such a life as Christians that we make other people hunger for the things of God. And I, I suppose all of those things could be true, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. In Galilee, salt just had one purpose. Uh, it, it wasn't to make food taste better. It wasn't to induce thirst. It had one purpose, and that was to preserve meat from rot. And so they would uh, kill an animal, 
and they wouldn't be able to eat the animal or maybe this animal they wanted to eat six months from now, they couldn't put it in a freezer or refrigerator because they just didn't have such a thing. And so they would salt the meat. It would preserve the meat. It would stop or at least slow the decay of the meat. That's what they understood salt to be. And so Jesus says we're to be the salt of the earth we're to be the preservation factor. We're, we're to be what stops the rot that's happening in our culture. The rot because of sin that's happening in our country and in our community. We, we ought to be what halts or at least slows down that rot. We're to be the salt of the earth. Now, how do we do that? How do we slow down uh, the rot that is around us? Well, we can do it by living a godly life. And that's what people point to most often when they teach this, that, that, that we ought to set the normal for our community. We, we ought to live a life such that, that we show how you ought to have a marriage. We show how you ought to raise godly children. We show how you ought to manage your finances. We show how you ought to have uh, integrity at work. And, and so we should live in such a way that we set the normal so when society, when our culture deviates from the normal, it'll be clear and hopefully they'll be pulled back to the normal. That we're to live a quiet, godly life and in doing so we become the salt, the preserving factor in our, in our culture. Uh, and and that, that's not untrue, uh, but I don't think that's specifically what he's talking about here. I think when he says that we're to be the salt of the earth, he's talking about the fact that we ought to take a strong stand for what is right. We ought to stand up and we ought to say, God says that is right and that is wrong. And we ought to be very clear about that and people shouldn't wonder about that. When we see the sin and the decay, when we see the rot moving through our culture, we ought to stand up and do what we can uh, to stop it. Now, sometimes salt hurts, right? Have you ever put salt on a wound? Salt hurts. And in our culture, sometimes for us to be salt is going to be very uncomfortable for the community or the culture, but that's what we're called to do. I remember when I was a little kid, I uh, was on my bicycle and I, I, I made a little ramp. I thought, I'd seen this on television and it looked like a lot of fun. And so I thought, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna run up this ramp on my bicycle as fast as I can, you know, then I'm gonna, you know, do a little trick in the air and then I'll land on the two tires, uh, but I'm not that coordinated. So I, I made it up in the air, but then I came off the bicycle and I landed on my arm and, and scraped it up pretty badly. It, it wasn't go to the hospital badly, but you know, times have changed. Probably today it would have been go to the hospital bad, but you know, 40 years ago, you just sucked it up, right? So I went home and I showed it to my mom. And so she had this solution. Uh, now, don't raise your hand if you've done this to your kids because I won't like you anymore. Uh, but uh, she uh, took this tub of water and she poured in Epsom salt. Have you ever done this? And I had to put my scraped up arm in that Epsom salt. It's been 40 years. I can still remember the pain. I can't remember my kids' names, but I can remember how badly that hurt 40 years ago. And she made me do that, I don't know, it seemed like every 10 minutes for the next year, it probably was only two or three times. But you know what the salt did? It, it prevented the infection from setting in, and my arm was fine, and it's not even a scar today. And, and, and that's, the salt was painful, but it did its job. 
Listen, church, we don't need to be obnoxious. We don't need to be unkind, but we need to be the salt. And when the Bible says to be the salt of the earth, it's, it's talking about the fact that we need to stand up and say abortion is wrong. We need to stand up and say adultery is wrong. That homosexuality is a sin. That being unjust to a group of people is wrong. Now, God can forgive and does forgive all of those things. And people can be restored. And we need to love on people. But it needs to be clear from us that those things are wrong. And, and when that's uncomfortable for our culture, then it's just uncomfortable. We don't need to muzzle ourselves because we risk offending somebody. My mom told me to put my arm in the salt and quit complaining about it. And sometimes as a, as a Christian, we need to stand up and say, this is what the Bible says about that. That is wrong. And if it's uncomfortable, then I'm sorry. It's just uncomfortable. Salt is an uncomfortable preserver, but it is an effective preserver. We are to be the salt of the earth. You notice it doesn't say that we're to be the honey of the world. Uh, It says that we're to be the salt. We are to be the Epsom's salt uh, to an infectious sin in our culture. So that's one kind of influence. We're to be the salt. The other kind of influence is light. Verse 14 says, you are to be the light of the world. Now, if salt retards or slows the growth of sin, light provides for, it aids the movement of a person to to, to the Lord. Now, let there be no confusion about this. When the Bible talks about, let me just step back and say, I think oftentimes we get this whole salt and light thing wrong. We, we say salt is just living a life of integrity, and it's much more than that. And we say that light is just showing people kindness. Well, that's not what salt is, and that's not what light is. When he says we're to be the light of the world, he is talking specifically about pointing people toward Jesus. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about telling people of the greatness of our God and the love of our God. He's talking about telling people that God judges sin and that there is a a, a judgment that awaits people who do not turn and surrender to Christ. He's talking about specifically pointing people to Jesus. We are to be the light of the world. Uh, Too often, Christians and churches, if we're not careful, we believe and we teach that our purpose is just to help people live a wise life. I have to think about this with every sermon I put together because the temptation is just to stand up here and teach people how to, how to have a little bit better marriage or how to overcome a little bit of stress or how to have you know, a, a little bit better, uh, more responsible children. And we could give a lot of moral lessons But listen, that's not our purpose, just to stand up and give moral lessons. Now, there are some moral lessons, and we need to be clear about them, but our purpose is not just to help people live a little better life. Our purpose is also not just to make people more comfortable, not just to feed hungry people and clothe uh, cold people or to give shelter to homeless people. That's not our purpose. Now, we may do that, and we should do that, and we may teach Uh, wisdom, and we should teach wisdom where it's found in scripture. But our purpose 
in doing all of those things is what? To point people toward Jesus. And when it says you are the light of the world, it's talking specifically about shining that light so that people can find Jesus. It's not our assignment just to make people more comfortable on their way to an eternal hell. It's, it's not, it's not our, our, our job just to make people feel loved on the way to hell. It is our job to point people to Jesus. We are to be the light of, of the world. You know, without Jesus, there's no hope. I mean, you, you, could, you could find some principles in the Bible that'll help you have a better marriage even without Jesus. And you could find some principles in the Bible that'll help you overcome depression even without Jesus. But in the end, none of that's gonna matter unless you have Jesus. Now notice what Jesus gave as the motivation for being the light of the world. Look at verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we don't need to have duplicity, but we need to have an ulterior motive to every act of kindness that we, that we perform. What is our ulterior motive? That they might see Jesus. Right here in verse 16, we do our good works, for what reason? That they might know and see and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And so if we do an act of kindness, and at the end of that act of kindness, people are, are, are just impressed with our niceness, or we do an act of kindness for our neighbor, and they're just impressed with how much people love them, then we've missed the goal. The reason we do an act of kindness, the reason we show love, the reason we provide food, the reason we, we teach about marriage or depression is so that they will know Jesus. We're to be the salt of the world, the salt of the earth, and, and the light of the world. Now, there are some dangers uh, to this uh, influence. So the first question we answered is, what kind of influence is he talking about? The second question is, what are the dangers to our influence? And there, there are two dangers he mentions here. The first one is the danger of contamination. Now, if you look back at verse 13, you're to be the salt of the earth, but... If the salt should lose its taste, how could it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt can't lose its saltiness. Salt is salty. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the salt being contaminated. And if it gets contaminated with other uh, minerals, then it loses its flavor. It loses its effectiveness as, a, as an agent of preservation, and it's worthless. See, we need to understand that we have the responsibility to, to stand and speak for what is right and to speak against what is wrong. But if we're not careful, sin can contaminate our lives such that we have no authority to do that. If I told you this morning that yesterday I lost my cool uh, with somebody at the, in line in front of me at Walmart who couldn't find uh, his billfold, when he was time to pay, and I just walked up to him and punched him in the nose, okay? Uh, what if I told you, and that didn't happen, these are all what ifs, okay? Um, what if I told you that uh, last week I lost control of my passions and I had an affair? What if I told you that last week I ran short of money and I robbed a convenience store? Okay, would any of those three things disqualify, 
disqualify me for standing up here today and trying to influence you with God's word? Absolutely. Why? Not because I'm preaching today on punching people or having an affair or knocking over convenience stores, but because those things would so contaminate my life that you wouldn't be interested in what I had to say about anything after that. And so we have to be careful that this danger of contamination, if we can't have this powerful influence in the lives of the people around us, if our lives are filled with sin and unconfessed sin. I visited my my mom this last week, spring break. We took a few days off and I went to Alabama uh, and a bunch of other places, but I did go see my mom for a few days. And uh, she is a former science teacher. So she's been doing some cleaning out at her house and she found a bunch of her old uh, elementary school science supplies. uh, And she found a, um, a jar of mercury. And she's trying to figure out how to dispose of it. And it's probably about a half cup of mercury. And if you don't know much about mercury, uh, you know, we played with it as kids. But today, uh, we know mercury as a terrible poison. And it just takes a tiny little bit of mercury to contaminate water such that it's unsafe for human consumption. In fact, I looked it up. It only takes two parts of mercury per billion parts of water Uh, to make it unsafe. And so I probably didn't do my chemistry or my math correctly, but if I did, that means that my mom has enough mercury to contaminate 16 million gallons of water. And so that's why she's trying to be careful not to pour it down the drain or put it in the the garbage. Uh, Now, it doesn't, here's the moral of that weird story. It, It doesn't take much mercury to contaminate a whole lake. And it doesn't take much sin in our lives. Let's, let's just recognize this. To, to contaminate our influence with our families, with our children, with our coworkers, it just takes a little bit. And our influence is, is, is weakened, is contaminated. And so the first danger he points to here for our influence is the danger of contamination. If influence is our most valuable tool, let's make sure we don't contaminate it. Now, the second danger that he points to is the danger of privacy. Now, look at verse 15. He's talking about light now. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all those who are in the house. So the danger is that you would have a light and you would put it under a a basket, yet you would, you would put it under a bowl that you would hide it. And the light would be perfectly good, it would just be hidden. Now that's the problem that, that, I, 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 that, I, that we face so often. We have the light of the gospel, we really are children of God, we really have been forgiven, and we know the gospel. We could tell somebody about the forgiveness of Christ, but we have kept our light hidden. We don't tell people about God's grace and mercy. We, we don't talk to coworkers about it. We don't talk to our families. We don't talk to friends and neighbors. Uh, the danger of, of privacy, privacy. Those two things limit our influence. We could have great influence, but we, we, we allow our influence to be contaminated by sin and we allow our light, the light of the gospel, to be covered to stay private. And that brings us to question number three, how are we serving God with our influence? You know, there are three things you can do. So let me talk about the things on either end of this continuum, and then we'll, we'll focus on the, the, the thing in the middle, 
But one, one thing you could do is you could influence people for evil. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you lead my children to sin, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. It's a terrible thing to influence people to sin, to influence people to sin. But that's one thing you could do with your influence. You can influence somebody to sin. On the other extreme, you can influence people to walk with the Lord. You could stand against what is wrong. You could share the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that you do. You, you can influence people to walk with the Lord. Now, in the middle of those two things, we could simply waste our influence. We could get to the end of our lives and discover that the greatest tool we had was left unused, was wasted, because we were not intentional about keeping it free of contamination and shining brightly the light that we have. Now, when I, when I think about those three people that had such an incredible influence in my life, and there have been many others, um, just maybe not as dramatically as those three, I am so thankful that they decided to use their influence. They had no idea at the time, I'm sure, what an impact that would make in my life. You and I need to have that same commitment to make an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Andre to say something at the end of the service, and so I'm going to wait and, and let him share uh, more. Uh, but many of you know we lost uh, one of our orchestra members, uh, uh, Dennis Fleetwood, this, uh, this week, unexpectedly passed away. And yesterday, I was sitting down with his wife, Brenda, and, and Brenda said, Pastor, if God could use this, this unexpected event, this tragedy, if God could use this to lead even one person to Jesus, then it'll all be worth it. And she said, I got to show you what I'm going to pass out at visitation on Tuesday. And I thought, well... Brenda, you don't have to pass out anything for visitation. I've been to a lot of funeral visitations. I've never seen anybody pass anything out. What in the world are you going to pass out? And she asked her daughter to go get her purse, and she pulled out some cards. And it's a little card that has the gospel on it. She said, you know, when people come by to tell me that they love me, you know what I want to do? I want to put this in their hand and tell them that Jesus loves them. And I thought, you know, there's a woman who has every reason to uh, shut herself up in her own little shell and, to, um, and just to focus on her own hurt and her own loss and, and her loss and her hurt is profound. But she's thinking about how she could have and how in the last days that her husband could have influence, not just to make people feel loved, not just to make people feel cared for, but to point people to Jesus. Would that we would all have that desire. You know, we asked you uh, a few weeks ago to write in your Bible the name of a few people, uh, two or three people that you this year are going to pray for and seek to reach out to to influence them for Jesus. I have them written here in my Bible, and I hope you have them written in the front flap of your Bible. But would we take the rest of this year and seek to be an influence, to be the salt and the light in the life of somebody that God has put on our heart. 
so that when stories are told in heaven of the grace and the mercy of God, it'll be told that they knew God's grace and mercy because of the influence you had in their lives. Let's pray. Father, speak to us in, in such a way that we recognize the value, the power of our influence. And may we use our influence for the glory of God. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.